bum bum bottom 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 bum
Yep. And uh, I nearly smashed my toes cracking coconuts on the sidewalk outside of our apartments. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I made spam musubi. Oh, so tasty. You have not made that in such a long time. You need to make that for me. It's not It's not good for you. Spam is, canned meat is not. Yeah, but it tastes so delicious. <laughs> it does. It's not like we're going to eat it every day, Lisa. That's true. That's true. I thought you were going to bring up Why the Last Man. That's a comic that both of us love. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where I first discovered uh, Brian K. Vaughn, and I think that's still uh, a high watermark as far as post-apocalyptic comic book fiction goes. Mm -hmm. And he also created the Marvel Runaways, which is uh, now a series on Hulu, which blows my mind. Yeah, he's a major force. Um, you know, he came from Cleveland. Uh, he was born on July 17th, 1976, so he's a little older than me, but not much not much older than me because I'm getting so damn old these days. <laughs> but so is he. I think at a regular rate, you are both getting older. <laughs> you will never catch up. Phew. Uh, as kids, he and his brother were obsessed with Peter David's work on The Incredible Hulk, but it was Joss Whedon's ascension in the world of TV, thanks to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that inspired him to take up the pen and do it himself. He studied film at New York University and partook in Marvel's Stanhatton Project, which was a class for wannabe writers looking to follow in the footsteps of Stan the Man Lee. His first official credit was on Tales from the Age of Apocalypse number two in 1996, and that would lead him to various other tiny gigs. He did Why the Last Man for DC's Vertigo line. What, what? Yeah, yeah. From 2002 to 2008. Obviously, we love Brian K. Vaughn, but enough about that guy, because we're equally in love with Fiona Staples. Yep, we have a signed picture of Lion Cat, like, right there. Uh, we have Lion Cat all, all over, over this, this apartment. All over this apartment, yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> we have a statue, we have a plush, we have an action figure, we have a Funko Pop. Like, we have a lot of Lion Cat in this place. He's well represented. And that's the truth. <laughs> I ain't lying. Well, Fiona Staples, she comes from Calgary, Canada. Ooh, Ooh. mysterious. And uh, most of her influences stem from literature. She cites The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald, The Dragon of the Lost Sea series by Lawrence Yep, The Red Wall series by Brian Jacques. I love that series. Yeah, me too. I read the shit out uh, of that. In, you did? In sixth grade. Yes, I did. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Really? I had a friend named Nicole, and, and she was super into them, and I was like, this, this That's so, so cool funny. So I read them, and I really enjoyed them. Ten years of marriage, and we're still learning things. So magical. That's crazy. You know, why hasn't there been, like, a great animated adaptation of Redwall? Because it would be cheesy. Cheesy? Redwall is perfect the way it is in books. Uh, Some stuff should not be adapted like Redwall. Like Saga. saga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then she finally also uh, get, says that a lot of influence came from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Snooze. Yeah, I never liked those either. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I, as a young Christian kid, I had a lot of Narnia shoved down my throat. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, Fiona Staples' first published work was Amphibious Nightmare, which was part of a 24-hour Comics Day highlights anthology published by About Comics. Basically meaning that her 24-page story was written, illustrated, and completed within 24 hours. Yeah, That's that. amazing. I love that. They have a film version of that that I've, I've always wanted to partake in, but i scared. No, don't be scared. No, i scared. You can do it. Okay. Uh, and then that led to work with Wildstorm and their adaptation of the horror anthology film Trick or Treat. 
and work on that got her attention of Brian K. Vaughn, and they had never worked together before. They had never met before. He sent out an email to her and said, hey, I got this project I think you'd be great for. Yay. So, Saga, Volume 1. That's what we're going to be talking about today. That's the first six issues. Uh, originally published in 2012 by Image Comics, those guys that brought us Spawn and Youngblood and Wildcats back in the 90s, they have evolved to um, to really celebrate so many different genres. And I guess right now they're probably most famous for The Walking Dead. Yeah. Um, but if you love Kirkman and you love that TV show, I'd recommend checking out Invincible, Kirkman's other comic book. Yeah, that's a fun, crazy read. So exciting. Yeah, for sure. Easily my favorite superhero comic. And that's big talk. I know we're just getting to know each other here on this podcast. We've only done one month of Scott and Gene and a little Mr. Miracle and now some saga. But I'm going to tell you straight up right now, if you want the God's honest truth, Brad's favorite superhero comic book is Robert Kirkman and Ryan Otley's Invincible. That really reveals a lot about a person. <laughs> I'm not afraid to share. Uh, so 2012, uh, Brian K. Vaughn, Fiona Staples, they partner up on this major project and it was designed to exist exclusively as a comic book. No movie or TV adaptations for this one, folks. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, Saga is a truly collaborative work, uh, a, a perfect meld between writer and artist. Vaughn scripts the stories and the dialogue and the narration, and Staples designs all the characters of the book, all the ships, all the planets, what have you, of course, aids in the plotting of the story as well. And she provides all the wonderful lettering that's connected to the narration of adult Hazel as she explains the story of her creation. And yeah, we cannot forget about all these insanely crazy, gorgeous painted covers that she provides month in and month out for the book. Okay, Brad, enough background information. Let's get to the book. Let's get to Saga. Yes. Tell these people, what is Saga? <laughs> well, Saga is, as we keep saying, an epic sci-fi romance. Um, this one depicts a Romeo and Juliet-like relationship between a man and a woman from two warring planetary bodies. No one knows what caused this war between Landfall and Wreath, but it's a savage conflict fueled by hate and fear. Marco, the male, was a captured soldier placed under the guard of Alana, the female. In volume one, we don't even know how they initially got together, but we do know that their union has caused the birth of a child, young Hazel, who narrates the story. And this fornication is seen as an abomination from both parties. And yeah, they want to capture that kid and kill these two lovers. What I find so interesting about this first volume of Saga, talking about it from a relationship point of view, is that even though they're having their first child, they're really in the honeymoon period of their relationship because the timeline uh, yeah. mm -hmm. is so tight. So, so yeah, we don't know exactly the origins of their relationship, but we know from the point that Marco was put under Alana's guard they were together for 12 hours. They escaped together. And within three months, she was visibly pregnant. And so presuming whatever species they are, whatever the gestation period <laughs> is, let's assume that this is like, you know, six months later um, at the beginning of this book when 
they are finally the Hazel is coming to Earth. Hazel is being born at the beginning of this book. Right. So they've been together just like less than a year. Yeah, yeah. And how long were we dating uh, before I proposed to you? We were actually only dating for six months. That's right. So <laughs> no, that was, we have no room to talk. But you didn't. You didn't fill me with an abomination of a love child <laughs> that both of our parents would disapprove of. That's true. But I mean, even though we did get engaged after six months of being together, our engagement was eighteen months. So yeah, it was right, a right, full right. two years before we even gotten married. We have yet to create a love child. Right. High fives there. So. <laughs> I've seen the movie First Reformed. Uh, <laughs> the world's dying, everyone. Yeah, it's probably not. A, and that actually uh, comes up in this it book sure as does. well. Well, how could it not? Um, <laughs> but they really are just still feeling each other out. They still have all kinds of secret, secrets from each other, lives, lies of omission, because they're still trying to kind of impress each other. Because in a lot of ways, they're still kind of dating yeah you know it's interesting uh i would be curious to know uh, i'm sure this information's out there somewhere online how where brian k vaughn was in his relationship with his wife at this point i know that saga is created directly as a result of the birth of his first child but where did where did his first child come from Come along in his relationship. Well, when a comic book creator and um, another person love each other very much, (laughs) they lie together. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you you make an excellent point because Marco and Lana do not know each other really at all at the start of this book. And we're introduced to them with Alana giving birth on page one to Hazel. Yeah. And we have to pay, play catch up, but we don't have to play a lot of catch up over the next couple of arcs. Yeah, that's true. Now we know for those of you who have already read this book, I don't think this is spoilers. Um, uh, in- you should have read this before listening to this episode. Cause we are going to spoil at least judgy, the volume Brad, one. Judgy. I won't spoil anything that has happened after volume one, but we're going to spoil everything that happened in the first six issues. Yeah, that's true. But there are time jumps in this story. So I'll, I'll be interested to like be able to talk about their relationship from time jump to time jump. But I think definitely in this book, we're seeing them in still a very um, hormone infused, infatuated stage. And we see all of these little differences that they have that are going to agitate their relationship in the future. Okay, okay. Well, now, before we really jump into the main conversation, we stated at the start of this show, and the whole conceit of our show is that we take a comic book series and we pair it with a uh, quote-unquote famous relationship self-help book. And for this month, for all of January, with Saga, we are going to be talking about John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, a book that I know quite well thanks to its very gimmicky, catchy title. But honestly, I know nothing about the series or, or nothing about the book. And Lisa, you know, as we stated during the whole uh, I don't like resolutions thing at the start of the show, ah, I don't like self-help books, so <laughs> I elect not to read them, and I, I make you do all that homework. Yeah, I am pro self-help book. I wouldn't say I am pro John Gray, and I'm definitely not pro men are from Mars, women are from Venus, but 
but we will get there. The reason we do the self-help book is because you and I, Brad and Lisa, we're not love experts. We don't have degrees. We don't have any kind of special training. We're just two people in love wanted to talk about love. Um, so we use the self-help books to kind of give us, uh, you know, a kaleidoscope through which to look and um, kind of put into frame these different relationships. Now, when you're uh, referring to uh, an expert like John Gray, what what would you like his, his um, so on the book, real big letters, his name is followed by John Gray, FD, PhD. So, Brad... <laughs> What what would you like John Gray's uh, degrees to be in? Make a serious guess. This is not time for jokes. Uh, you know, psychology, mm-hmm. um, counseling. sociology. Oh yeah, counseling. Maybe some kind of social yeah, work. Yeah. No. Is it all communications? <laughs> he has. Um, well, first, so he has PhD. Indicates you have three degrees. So um, he has um, his undergrad and his master's. He he received um, his two degrees in the science of creative intelligence, um, which is a, which he received from a Maharishi university, which means that he has two degrees in transcendental meditation. Okay. So he has his degrees in Eastern religion. The now, way you're there, saying that, Lisa, it sounds very condescending. I, I, can, I, I don't know if our listeners know, but I could hear it in your voice. I am very pro-meditation. I'm, I, I'm, I'm even kind of pro transcendental meditation. Transcendental meditation is kind of a, it has a slight pyramid scheme idea to it. So the way it works is um, you have a guru come to your home and you pay them excesses of hundreds to thousands of dollars to tell you what your um, magic word is, um, your, oh, I I forget the word. I'm so sorry, but whatever you're the word you're going to meditate on. Okay. And then you give them thousands of dollars and the conceit is, well, if you're spending thousands of dollars on it or hundreds of dollars on it, um, you're more likely to follow through with the meditation. So there is like this monetary aspect of transcendental meditation. It's like when I buy the omnibus of Captain America, uh, the Winter Soldier. I, I've committed to that entire <laughs> Brubaker arc. To, to use it. Yeah, I'm going to read the whole thing. Read it. Um, but uh, what I do want to point out is that transcendental meditation is not a science. So he doesn't have, even though it says um, science of creative intelligence, it's not really a science with a capital Sci. Science. No, yeah. Um, there is even even though he has these two degrees, there's still doubt. To the to whether these two degrees are actually accredited, uh-huh. and um, according to Wikipedia, nobody knows which Maharishi. Nobody's one hundred percent sure which Maharishi uh-huh. University he actually went okay, to. Okay, okay. So uh, what you're saying is that John Gray, PhD, is as much of an expert on love and relationships as Brad and Lisa Gullickson. Perhaps. So now that <laughs> only addresses his first two degrees. His degree, his doctorate. Um, that gives him that really super sweet PhD at the end of his name. Um, he earned via a correspondence course from uh, the unaccredited and now defunct, due to court order, Columbia Pacific University. Uh, so his doctorate, the the doctorate he worked for, 
through correspondence <laughs> course um, is also real super sketch. Mm. And he also has an honorary doctorate from Governor State University, which he got for giving their uh, commencement address. Well, okay. We know where you're coming from. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when... His book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, came out in 1992. It was huge. It was huge. It was on the bestseller list for 121 weeks and has now sold over 15 million copies. Yeah, I feel like I've known about this book my whole life. Yeah, no, same here. I was actually kind of surprised that it came out in 1992. Yeah, same, same. Huh, Uh, interesting. But... Since it came out, um, the ideas behind Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus have kind of fallen out of favor. And um, and uh, when I describe to you the conceit behind Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, you'll see why. So the whole idea behind Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus is the idea that men and women are so fundamentally different that they ha- and have so little common ground to which they can relate to each other it's like they're from different planets okay got it i i i think i could figure that out from the title right so relationship issues arrive because they speak different languages observe different customs and have different ideals and has no idea where the other is coming from so he created the idea of these different planets mars and venus and came up with a little fable about how Martians and Venusians ended up on Earth to have relationships with each other. So um, the Martians, which are going to correlate with men, are goal-oriented and self-sufficient, but they didn't have anyone to fawn over and appreciate all the cool stuff they've accomplished. So they invented telescopes, and then they looked through their telescopes, and they saw Venus, and they were like, Wow, those are some sexy Venusians. Um, so they invented rocket ships and they blasted off into space and to Venus. Now, Venusians are less console- concerned with goals and are more concerned with the quality of their relationships and their feelings. So when the Martians arrived on their planet, they were like, yay, there are more <laughs> beings to nurture and communicate with. So they fell in love, and they decided to go to a new planet that's Earth. But then um, when they got to Earth, they uh, experienced a kind of selective amnesia. And so they no longer... So they still don't relate to each other, but they no longer remember that they're from different planets, and all of their cultural differences are creating all of these Uh problems between them. Okay. So um, for me... I like a good allegory. <laughs> For me, it was like John Gray was listening to the the hack comedians of the 1980s. My wife is always talk, talk, talk. I wish she would just shut up and make a sandwich so I can walk the, watch the game. Am I right? You know what I mean? I wish our listeners could see your face <laughs> as you're talking. Uh, like... To me, he it was like he was watching those guys and going like, man, somebody's got to do something about these men and women relationships. They're really not getting along. So um, the way the book is structured is um, he takes each, like each chapter highlights a fundamental difference that he perceives between men and women. And it comes up with like a, another little allegory about Mars and Venus and how the issue is handled on Mars and how the issue is handled on Venus. And then 
then he applies that to um, how men communicate and how women communicate. But the problem is they're based on these gender stereotypes that are not cross cross referenced. Like, so for example, if you read a chapter and you go like, well, I, even though I'm a man, I feel like I'm relating more to the Venusian side. Like I'm feeling like, you know, that's uh, what you're doing as a reader. Yeah. Like I'm saying you, Brad. Yeah. But I'd never read this. We've established <laughs> yeah, that's that already. Right. So, <laughs> but you go, well, I feel like I relate more to like, the Venusian side, or I would go, uh-huh. oh, I feel like I relate more to the Mar- Martians. Well, you can't, like, you can't handle a woman, even if they she relates more to the Martian side, you can't handle a woman like a Martian. Okay, all right. Yeah, so, and he, and, like, and he goes, like, men who relate more to the Venusian side, well, you just have been, you're, you've just been coddled too much, and you, you are afraid of your masculinity. And women who relate to the Martian side, well, clearly you've been suppressing your female side to make it in business and put on a business suit and maybe approaching things with the Mars-Venus mentality will help you relate more completely with the planet you're supposed to okay, be, okay. be associated right. with. But you object to the very notion that men behave one way and women behave one way uh, all the time. Of course, of course. And a lot of these gender differences are things that are socialized in. They're not yeah. they're not because of any kind a, of yeah, yeah. inherent, you know, womanness that I have or manness that you have. It's systemic it's systemic oppression is what exactly. causes a lot of this stuff that it's he's talking about. It's systemic oppression and it's something that as a society we're we're trying to get away from. Yeah, yeah. So so I think um there's definitely a lot of 90s ideas and we've evolved a lot since the 90s but John Gray went on after this to create like this kind of franchising of Mars Venus um therapy that was um actual therapists found yeah. like really questionable I can tell you as a former Barnes and Noble retail employee he had his own shelf Oh yeah Oh yeah. He, well, he's not unlike Gary Chapman of yep. the Five Love yep. Languages. When these kinds of ideas get their hooks into the zeitgeist, they are they stick. But I gotta say, you know, um, I, I don't think we came away from our first series on Scott Summers and Jean Grey using the Five Love Languages and thought, boy, Gary Chapman is a hundred percent on point. But there were some interesting. Uh, or at least uh, usable ideas in the five love languages. Because I think the five love languages has a certain amount of tailoring to it. You can go like, well, I do find myself identifying with these love languages, you know, words of affirmation, personal touch, so on. So you can make it suit you. Gary Chapman is pointing at you as a heterosexual male and saying, this is who you are, you know, Period, end of sentence. You mean John Gray. John Gray. Oh, I misspoke. But you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. He's like saying, this is who you are. This is how you should be treated. This is how you should be treating your partner. Right, right, um, right. I, I don't know. I'd be curious because we found ways to talk about Chapman uh, with Scott and Jean. Uh, I'm already feeling iffy about applying uh, men are from Mars, women are from Venus to Marco and Alana. What, what Mars and Venus doesn't have that the five love languages had was this kind of shorthand 
to, to talk about the whole idea of Mars and Venus. So my approach is going to be, so each chapter highlights a different kind of, of issue and a different kind of difference between men and women. So, um, so what I'm going to do is for each volume, I'm just going to pick one chapter to apply to that volume so that we're not talking all over the place. And then of course we'll do our usual like armchair, no transcendental degrees, <laughs> um, therapizing of this relationship too. Um, but I, I still think there will be valuable conversation coming out of Mars and Venus, even if it is, this idea is stupid and uh -huh. what you should do is okay. this. So what you're saying is let's not throw this podcast series into a dumpster fire just yet. I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> Another limitation of Mars and Venus is that it only addresses heteronormative couples. In the five love languages, Gary Chapman only talked to heteronormative couples, but I can see um, other LGBT plus pan polyamorous people getting a lot of value out of the idea of the five love languages. But uh, Mars and Venus, John Gray, his whole concept falls apart as soon as you have any other kind of combination of gender. Right, right. So, like, but I can't tell if it's, like... There is no fluidity in this metaphor. Hell no. <laughs> uh, but, but I can't tell if it's, like, anti-gay or super pro-gay. Because if you have two men together, well, you've got two Martians together. So uh -huh. you're not going to have any conflict because they speak the same language and they come from the same culture. Uh, oh, oh, he but doesn't you know address I mean? that, but he, you could take it that way. Yeah, or, but, like, with But Venetians. isn't that also... Uh, categorically wrong because we, you know, just because you're two dudes hanging out and, and in love with each other doesn't mean you're going to get of along a okay. And we know that to be uh, a total fallacy. Of course. So Mars and Venus, just mm. shorthand, is just complete and total bunk. <laughs> John Gray is so up his own butt with this concept, and um, he really, like each chapter, really tries to drive these sexist, ancient, stereotypical ideas home in a way that is so hard to get through. Okay. So All hard right. to get through. All right. But we're still feeling good about choosing this book for this series. No backsies. Can't do this episode <laughs> over. I read that book and I want full credit, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to share what I've learned. No joke. Lisa, like, at night, every every time we go to bed, uh, you know, I, I'll I'll shut the lights off. She'll boot up her iPad and she's just plowing through this book, and I'm I'm sawing logs. <laughs> yeah, so that is gold true. star for you, Lisa. But you did w look at Brian K. Vaughn's Wikipedia. I sure so did. So you did your work too. Oh yeah, we're oh, both yeah. doing our homework. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, let's get into the story. Let's let's get back to saga. I feel like the best place to start with this book is page one. Absolutely. Um, what we see here is a, a splash image of Alana. And I do not like the word the, the word splash in context to given birth. So gross. <laughs> Sorry, Lisa. It's a technical comic book term. 
I'm going to be using the word splash a lot this episode. Yeah. Uh, so yes, page one. There is Alana. She's screaming. We see Hazel's narration flowing over her mother's hair, and it says, "This is how an idea becomes real." Um, now we try not to swear on this podcast. We keep our profanity for other shows that we host. If you've listened to In the Mouth of Darkness podcast, you know what hard work it is for me not to swear <laughs> compulsively and disgustingly. But the reality is, if we're going to talk about saga, uh, we are going to drop some profane language every now and again, like right here, because as Alana is getting giving birth, she is questioning, am I shitting? I feel like I'm shitting. Yep. That's so how the book starts. I think this is really indicative of the attitude and tone for the entire series. Um, you, you know, they, Vaughn loves it when we turn a page and we are assaulted with a phrase or assaulted with an image that is just something extreme uh, that we don't necessarily encounter in our daily lives or we don't want to think about those times when we do encounter them in our daily lives, like giving birth. Guess what? Women do uh, evacuate their bowels as 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 they are, are birthing. Sometimes, not always, Lisa. My sister swears she doesn't, she didn't, but I don't believe her. <laughs> I just don't. Now, what's kind of cool uh, is that if you go online, you can actually find an interview that Fiona Staples did with Vulture back in October of last year. And she actually shared Brian's script for the first page. Lisa, would you like me to actually read his script? It's It's short for that first page. Yes, please. Um, so it goes, page one, your favorite word, splash. Uh, we open tight on a profile shot of the right side of a panicked young woman's face. We're so close that her head fills almost the entire page. This is Alana, our heroine. She's probably only in her early 20s, but her face is world-weary. She's seen a hell of a lot in her years. Right now, Alana is sweating profusely. Her face is slick. Her short, cropped, multicolored hair is even more of a mess than usual. At the moment, Alana is a little heavier than she normally likes to be, but it lends a friendly softness to her face. At first glance, Alana might appear to be an attractive human woman, but eventually you notice the strange things jutting out from behind her shoulder blades. Strange things we can see only a glimpse of in this close-up. More on them shortly. For now, all that matters is the fact that Alana seems terribly worried about something. Her expression should be a mixture of horror and embarrassment. And then, yes, am I shitting? I, it feels like I'm shitting. I think that that moment and this whole birthing sequence is so indicative of this early stage of their relationship because... Um, Alana is crass, she is self-deprecating, and she is really unsure of herself. And she's, she's constantly reaching out to Marco for affirmation. Am I shitting? Um, <laughs> uh, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, I really, like, the next page you flip it and she's like, um... Seriously, you'll never have sex with me again if I defecate all <laughs> over you, unless you're secretly into that. 
please don't be into that. Like, so she from the jump, from the from the jump, she's she's all already revealing like, I don't know everything about you. Maybe this maybe you are into some kind of. A uh, crazy fecal play. I don't know. But like she's reaching out to him for affirmation and he is just being supportive and proud and um, loving and loving. And and really, um, he like he's a pretty modern guy, like going like, you know, I'm here to assist you. Do you need a healing spell? There's no shame in having a healing spell, you know, so. This is how the, their early relationship operates. She, she um, something comes her way, some kind of conflict, some kind of hurdle, and she responds to it emotionally, and he mm. responds to it supportively, mm. and um, and that's how it goes. Fix it mode for the first several volumes, at least. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there is some change up as the series progresses, uh, but in reversals but as still- well. They're still feeling each other out is what I'm saying. Right, uh, right, right. I think the other aspect of these first two pages that I think it's important to notice, uh, not necessarily from their relationship point of view, but how Staples and Vaughn are introducing this science fiction world. It is still very much of the moment. You're talking about Marco asking if, hey, I can get you a a healing spell. You know, there's no shame in that. And, you know, there's no shame in an epidural. If the drugs are there, you might as well take them, right? But some, some women want to give birth without the aid of drugs. So, like, the world you're seeing is similar, slightly skewed in a fun fantasy way. Mm-hmm. And that goes all the way through the technology. Um, you know, the it's you know we've seen rocket ships, but we might be introduced to a funky wooden rocket ship, and you know, like it's all slight tweaks on our reality. Yeah, it's well, it's that that melding of magic and machinery, right? And so, Saga, uh, for all its insanity, for all its profanity, it is grounded in something recognizable. Yeah. So we flip the page again, and then we get this beautiful splash page of Marco, and he's he's crying, these beautiful tears of happiness, and he's holding his newborn infant baby girl in his hands and saying it's a girl. Yeah, so that page right there, I would kill or go to war with a small nation to own that page. Marco like if- would not approve of your killing. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold that thought right now. But like like that that image I that is the saga image in my mind in a lot of ways is is Marco holding up that tiny little infant. Yeah. Uh, it's truly beautiful and like you're if you're not in love with Fiona Staples art in the first 3 pages, by the 4th page, she's one of your top 10 favorite comic book artists immediately. I find Marco and Alana, just an extremely sexy couple. They oh, are yeah, so yeah. hot. And, uh, you know, uh, the, when I was reading the script of the first page, you know, uh, Brian K. Vaughn makes mention of strange things that appear on her back. Yeah, so she's got wings. Now they're clipped, but her race has wings. And Marco, he has these massive ram horns on his head. But otherwise, they're like pink and a male supermodel. Yep, 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 for sure, for sure. Now, Okay, there's the baby. Well, we've got to sever that umbilical cord. And <laughs> again, Staples and Vaughn, they love, you know, giving you that shock. Marco goes in and, 
he's going to use his tiny little incisors and he's going to bite through the umbilical cord. I find that so gross. You know, that's just a freaking <laughs> feces tube. No, thank you. I'm not putting my mouth on that. Well, he can't use his sword because he has sworn an oath. To, uh, you know, he's done with the way of the soldier and he will never unsheath that blade again in an act of violence, mm-hmm. even to sever the umbilical cord of his newborn daughter. So he's got a... (laughs) Another interesting thing about this book is not only are they a new relationship, but they're also in a new ideological place because this vow that Marco has made is fairly new and he, he is trying to figure himself out as a pacifist after being raised on wreath to make war with landfall. And uh, Alana was a guard for the other side. And there is some kind of either change of heart or, or something that caused her to, to leave the military as well and start this new life with the super hot enemy. (laughs) So, so ideologically they're, they're feeling themselves out. Yeah. They're super unsure of the choices they've made, but they can't go back on anything because there's baby Hazel. Right. Uh, so the, 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 the story kicks off from there. Baby is born and here comes a landfall army at, because they're, they're not in a hospital. They're in a garage, like, you know, a mechanic's garage giving birth. Right. And Marco has paid off this mechanic, uh, to give him a little time to, to do what they've got to do. And this mechanic has double crossed them, called up the landfall army and they're at the door ready to blast in. And they have brought with them a Baron from the robot kingdom. Yes. Baron Robert, the 23rd. And you, you know, again, one of my, uh, first, moments of falling in love with the design work of Fiona Staples was encountering this baron. The, the robot kingdom, their species are uh, humanoids, but on their head are TV sets. Yeah. And yeah, so they cool. project their emotions and their memories right there on the sets. And so there's a skirmish and uh, the baron is killed. I love this moment. Before we even jump to the baron being killed, oh, okay. we see... So here's a moment I can bring in uh, Mars and Venus. Okay, so in the book, um, uh, John Gray submits that when um, men approach an issue, they approach it with the idea of uh, solution and that they're the sole source of solution. And um, when women approach an issue, they approach it emotionally and they're approaching um the problem to gain emotional support and that's what makes them feel like they can find a solution um so this is a little and i find that and we've like we've seen that be true more um in scott and gene's relationship when we were talking about um x-men uh, that Scott was kind of the tactician and he like when he approached an issue he had he would draw back and he would think about it until he came up with a solution and if he didn't come up with a solution he would just say nothing while um, Jean Grey would go like we're resolving this right now I have a problem here's what it is um, but we see that not be true with Big Barda and Mr. Miracle Big Barda was much more like um, 
we need to create more space in the apartment. You need to move things. <laughs> Why? Because we're going to have a baby. <laughs> and he's like, tears. And she's just like, what? So I, I would say that Barda and Scott Free have more in common with Marco and Alana than um, Scott and Jean. I think, I some think similarities in some ways, there. yes, because um, Alana, like Barda, is more likely to invoke violence right away. But I think that Barda, in general, is more even-tempered than Alana. And um, I think that this uh, is a yeah. wonderful example. So when Baron, uh, when the, the- Barda's stoic, for sure. Yeah, until she's not. You right, know what I mean? Right. So when the garage door is thrown open and um, Baron Robot and all of the soldiers come in, um, Marco goes immediately for calm- passive negotiation while Alana is in the background still spread eagle having just given her given birth to a child and yells suck my hemorrhoids (laughs) (laughs) and we see this kind of again and again in this first um in this first arc where um Alana's first inclination is to say something crass and violent and his first inclination is like Hey, we're not here to cause any problems. You know, I like we're passive, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Now, then right before uh, the Baron and his goons kick down the door, Marco's comrades show up and there's a firefight and the Baron is killed. And, and all of the Rethians are killed. And all the Rethians are killed. And Marco and Alana flee. Um, now that mechanic is also mortally wounded and he feels real bad about yeah, that. Yeah, because the grease monkey, he was the guy who sold out Marco and Alana to both sides. Yeah, and in a not so subtle fashion, but in a super adorable uh, way, the grease monkey is literally... A, a grease monkey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> with the tail and the whole thing. He gives them a map as a I'm sorry. It well, it's the it's the map he bought with the money he got he, from selling them out right, 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 to buy right, this. Right. And it is a map to the mythical rocket ship forest where Marco and Alana will hopefully find a wooden rocket ship to take off from this mud hole of a planet. Yeah, and the existence of this treasure map like marco is really skeptical of the accuracy of the map but alana believes it and believes in it because she's from landfall but something that i find interesting is later when they're in the forest he's the one who believes in the horrors even though he's not from landfall and she's the one that's skeptical so even though they're from different planets and they've heard of the same things. Yeah. Their their kind of superstitions don't really cross over. Yeah, they have their own kooky beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, they're looking for this uh, rocket ship. And, and a way off the planet. And, and a way off the planet and escape from all the conflict that they've known their entire lives. And in the, 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 the last moments of the first issue are the couple arguing over what they're going to name their child. And we learn the child's name before they ever do, because Hazel is narrating it. And she goes, Hey, my name is Hazel. And Marco and Alana, while, while we've learned her name, they're still going like, well, I like H as a start. 
It's cute because it, it, it is kind of like the big Barda and Mr. Miracle where the father is coming up with all of these different names and the mother is just kind of shooting them down one after the other. And as they're arguing, they're sort of flirting with each other. She's carrying Hazel in her arms and Hazel's saying, you know, because of these two weirdos, because of these these bickering maniacs that have birthed me, I, I get to have a, a, a full and happy life. And we turn the page, and it's again, it's another like beautiful, beautiful splash uh, from Fiona Staples. Uh, it's a kiss uh, between uh, husband and wife, and their baby in between, and Hazel answering, you know, not everybody does. Not everyone gets a happy life. And what we're going to see over the course of this entire series is a lot of bloodshed uh, in the wake of this romance. There is so much. Hazel's entire, like Hazel's love language is um, foreboding. <laughs> and the first time I read Saga, I didn't really appreciate it that much because, you know, only so many, like, Right. Volumes and, existed. And you didn't so, know what was coming. Exactly. So now I have like a separate document on my laptop of just Hazel's foreboding clues. So what that, was the first one there? Um, so the first one happens right after the scene where Special Agent Gale is informing Prince Robot 4 about... Um, oh, Prince Robot 4. Yeah, we have to get into him. Ugh, this first episode is so hard because you just want to say everything. And there's so much going on. But he is informing, um, Special Agent Gale is informing Prince Robot 4 of Marco and Alana and um, says that, you know, they're targets and Prince Robot 4 has to go and get them. Um, but at the end of that, um, Hazel says... From my very first day, I was pursued by men. All of them tried to hurt me, but only one managed to break my heart. Right. Yeah. Boom! Dun, I'm like dun, writing dun. that down. And then you go from Prince Robot 4's little introduction to the Will and, and Lion Cat's introduction. Another beautiful saga couple. Will we do an episode about them? Who knows? Oh, man. That would be a wild take on that concept. Uh I do think that there is a moment that we skipped that's before the kiss that I think is going to be really indicative of their contrasting parenting strategies. Um, So Alana is holding the map and she is trying to convince Marco. Oh, this is before the kiss. Yeah, this is before the kiss. Okay. So convince him to follow the map. And um, he is saying that there's going to be unnecessary risks. And he says, he starts saying, we have a family to think about now. And she stops him and she's like, don't ever say those words to me. And she says, sorry, but we have a family to think about now is the rallying cry of losers. <sighs> and um, and then she talked about like, um, in her family, her her dad threw away a life of adventure yeah. to take care of his family and then resented them for it and treated them horribly. And so so he goes, like, so what do you want to do? Like, how do you want to raise this child? And she says, I want to show our girl the universe. Mm, so so she is prioritizing mm. adventure and experience over safety, 
where Marco might not necessarily see it that way all of the time. So he takes this tremendous leap of faith following his wife with the treasure map and letting her set the pace of the beginning of this child's life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so good. Yeah. Now, as they're following the Grease Monkey's map to the rocket ship forest, uh, they are being stalked, (laughs) pun intended. Oh, yeah. Not really. (laughs) By a freelance hit woman known as The Stock. There are actual several freelance bounty hunters after Marco and Alana. They've been hired by the government of Wreath, which is Marco's moon planet that he's from, who uh, have hired these freelancers to eliminate discreetly Marco and Alana, but uh, keep the child alive. Right. And the will and lion cat are one Mm -hmm. and the stock is another. I love the design of the stock. Uh, She's absolutely amazing, armless and fatal as F. Yeah, so she's armless, but she's got all those legs though, Lisa. Yep, all tucked underneath a voluminous skirt. Yes, Uh, and (laughs) so she appears in the forest and um, she, um, you know, they're they're obviously transfixed by her beauty and her strange appearance. And And Marco was doing the pacifist thing. He lays down his sword. He's like, we're not here to harm anybody. Damn it, Marco. And immediately gets stabbed in the neck by her poison tongue. Yeah. And he hits the dirt. And it's just Hazel, Alana, and the stock. And the stock thinks she's won. But Alana pulls a ray gun that she got from... Her stun gun. That's right. So it's a heartbreaker. So... It's not fatal, but if you're shot with it, it makes you sad like the time your dog Rumfer died. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she pulls this ray gun on the stock, and the stock is like, that's a heartbreaker. It's, it's not going to do anything to me. <laughs> but then um, Alana turns the gun to Hazel's forehead. And even though it wouldn't kill the stock, it would certainly kill a couple days old infant. Right. And uh, what, so it's like, okay, we're at a standoff here, right? Now, in the previous issue, when they had their first kiss, we saw some red eyes in the corner in the background of the forest. And they've been talking about how this place is haunted with the horrors. And just when we think there's no hope of of reprieve from this situation, these ghosts appear and Mm -hmm. terrify and scare off the stock. Yep. And, uh, but you know what? They're actually pretty cool ghosts. Yeah. And they have names. They are actually the victims of previous conflicts that have occurred on this planet. And uh, they are doomed to a life of haunting those that dare invade their territory. And one of them is Isabel, this teenage girl who, who's been cut at the waist and her bowels are flowing through her wound. Fiona Staples loves drawing bowels. It's uh, like her favorite thing. And, you know, like like she does throughout this entire series, it makes the horrific quite beautiful. Yeah. So the stock is scared off, but Marco is still fatally wounded and lying on the ground. And the horrors are just kind of hanging out. Some of them get scared away, but Isabel stays because she, 
we find out she wants something out of them. So um, Alana is like going like, do you, give me one of your healing spells. Let's do one of your healing spells so you can be healed. And Marco, barely conscious, says, like, for, for a wound this fatal, I need snow. And she's like, well, we're on this hot Swamp planet. planet. <laughs> There's not going to be any snow. And Isabel's like, I can get you snow. And Alana is like, okay. And she's like, but you have to do something for me. I want to get off of this planet too. So um, I would like to have my dead soul bonded to uh, your baby's soul because Be- your baby was born on Cleave and she needs to be bonded to a, to a soul that was born on Cleave. Yeah, yeah. And Alana's like, over my dead body. Like, literally pages ago, she's like, I'm going to shoot my baby in the head <laughs> rather than give her to you. Hey, and now she comes she- around. She comes around. Yeah, she does. But, I mean, not before, like, trying to drag Marco's limp body up a mountain. Sure, sure. But they get the snow. So victory. Now we got to talk about Marco. Let's slip something in his coma haze. A secret of omission. Yeah, I love you, Gwendolyn. What? 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 Who's Gwendolyn? <laughs> yeah. And we've been talking about how these two really don't know anything about each other uh, beyond the fact that I find you hot and we've mated. Uh, So Alana now is, you know, she's carrying this unconscious body of Marco and this terrifying uh, scenario of another woman in his life, another wife in his life is torturing her. And Isabel and, and, and Alana are just shouting back and forth about what Marco has just said but they're still going to get that snow, and yes, they get that snow. Yeah. So, um, and even though the um, even though he's she the entire time he's unconscious, she is like livid, mad at him. Um, when he comes back to consciousness, the first thing they do is kiss. Yeah, yeah, and and you and know, then the second thing she does is be like, "Now who is Gwendolyn?" Sure, and you know what? Don't blame her. Yeah, and he says, "Look, uh, I I was engaged to this woman uh, before I left for combat, uh, but I have seen things that I cannot unsee, and." I tried to talk to her about it and she had no interest in hearing me and and my concerns and my fear. She always just said, Marco, fight the good fight. Do your country proud. And you know what? That relationship was never going to work out. I'm in love with you. This is legit. This is real. Oh, and by the way, we are wearing her grandparents' (laughs) wedding rings, but for a very practical purpose, they've got a translation spell put on them, and we wouldn't be able to talk to each other if it wasn't for the translation spell. Ah, comics. I love it. I love it. I love it. So after a lot of flailing and explanation, uh, Marco finally gives her a sincere apology. Can you find it in your heart to forgive me? And she's like, well, just tell me you weren't lying when you said I was the sexiest woman you've ever slept with. And he's like, yeah, you are. Of course you are. Gwendolyn may be tall, but you've got womanly hips. And then she, she says the greatest comeback to all things. She says, you know, for a pacifist, you sure beg to get stabbed a lot. Oh, man. But I think that that is uh, an indicative moment as well of her going like, well, tell me my value. Like, I know that you valued this woman in your past, but but 
tell to me my sexual value to you now. And he, and he trips over his own feet doing it, which is so male. Well, let's talk about that pacifist line there too. Mm -hmm. Right. Because how does this, uh, arc end? Um, Marco is cornered, uh, by landfall soldiers. His family is put in risk and, uh, he whips out the sword and he goes to town on those soldiers. He slaughters them. Great, great action uh, depicted by Fiona Staples, but also really scary. Those expressions on Marco's face, you can see why he doesn't want to go to this place ever again, because it is animalistic. It is vicious. It is scary. And he's really good at it. I mean, he kills all them soldiers all by himself. So he's in full on Wolverine berserker mode and Alana shoots him with the heartbreaker, knocking him out of this blood frenzy. And she says, dear, that's enough. And he looks at the sword on the bloody snow. And then he looks at her and says, what would I do without you? Mm. I love that moment because Mm. Alana does not have the same pacifist ideology that Marco does, but she knows how important it is to him. And how horrible it was that he had to break it. Necessary, but horrible. Exactly. And, and she just knows that he would feel awful if he got stuck in that violent place. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the two of them get on that rocket ship and they get the hell off of that, uh, mud planet. And, you know, there's uh, other stuff that we haven't really talked about. We didn't talk about the will going to sextillion and, um, we didn't talk about this, you know, the stock is gone. Yeah. Uh, we've, we barely knew her. And in that skirmish, Prince robot, the fourth, he blasts a hole right through her chest. And I I remember reading this the first time and I was stunned because I, you know, like we said, she's one of the most amazing, beautiful designs of this entire run. And she was presented as this tremendous threat, the most fatal freelancer. Right. And then now here's a hole in her chest and she's down on the ground, staring up at the reader dead. Yeah. Uh, Oh, well, Um, We'll see how that plays out in uh, future volumes. And this series ends with they're on the rocket ship. They're safe in outer space. Everything's fine. They've escaped the horrors. No one's going to bother them anymore, right? The showers are really nice and and hot. (laughs) A hot shower. And boom, magic is detected by the rocket ship. And who teleports aboard but... Marco's mom and dad. Wah, 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 the in-laws. The in-laws. That's the true terror of any family. (laughs) Any marital relationship. (laughs) And that's the end of volume one of Saga, the first six issues. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of exposition in that story. Um, I feel like we've barely gotten to know Marco and Alana as a couple. They barely know each other as a couple. But I feel like you and I, if we were to take one message away for our relationship from this first volume is the idea of we are the guardians of each other's ideologies and Mm. it's our job to encourage each other to be the best people that we want that that they want to be like I should encourage you to be the person you want to become you encourage me to become the person that I want to become yeah for sure and I think we do that for each other Lisa yeah 
we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I I think about this last year. We talked about it on our bonus episode, but it's been a, a year of change for the Gullicksons, and I've needed a lot of your support in pursuing my writing, and uh, I don't think I could have done it without you, uh, you know, protecting me and also shooting me with a heartbreaker when I need it. Yeah, well, there are times where um, you doubt what the future of your writing is going to be or you... Um, want to make a decision that would change your traje- trajectory from from a defensive place and it's my job to say no keep your eyes on the prize you have made it so far in this this past year that no matter what the risk is i think we're in a position where you can really go for it yeah but are we going to have a child anytime soon no never <laughs> No, never. Yeah, because of that first splash page. Yeah, gross. (laughs) I don't want to defecate in front of anybody ever unless they ask politely for fun. Closed door policy. That's right. Um, Okay, this is what we're going to do. Okay. Um, Now, with Scott Summers and Jean Grey, we hopped all around X-Men continuity to explore their relationship. And we considered doing that for Marco and Alana. There are currently nine trade paperbacks available to you, the listener, you, the reader. Um, And we could hop from volume one to volume four or volume six and, and, and do their entire relationship in four weeks of this episode of this series. Yeah. But I enjoyed reading this first volume so much. I want to just go to volume two. Yeah, well, I think also with Scott Summers and Jean Grey, we were exploring how their relationship uh, presented itself under different writers. And Mm, with Marco and Alana, their through line is done entirely by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. For sure, yeah. So there isn't going to be that compare and contrast of writers and and their ideas of who these characters are. So uh, to me, it's it doesn't have the same value jumping around as it did with Scott Summers and Jean Grey. So for January, we're going to do Sagas Volumes 1 through 4. Pa- paperback volumes, yeah. Paperback volumes. And then we're going to take a break, and then later in the year, we're going to return to Saga and pick up immediately with Volume 5, and then we'll carry it through to Volume 9. So... In 2019, we're going to cover the entirety of Saga. As it exists now. As it exists uh, uh, of this recording. Yes, correct. Yeah. Cool. That sounds good to me. All right. So what's interesting about that to me, Lisa, is I've read every single issue of Saga. You have not. You have read the first four trade paperbacks, but then you bailed. Yeah. So (laughs) it's hilarious because we've talked about like... Our apartment is covered in lion cats. We love Brian K. Vaughn. We love Fiona Staples. We love this book. All of that is true. Um, but there is a moment at the end of volume four that troubled me so much that I literally just jumped off of the saga train. Okay, don't talk about that. I, I won't talk about that. But it is kind of frustrating to me revisiting these first four volumes because now I think enough time has passed, enough healing has happened that I am hungry for those next five volumes. Um, 
And the fact that I have to wait until later in the year <laughs> ugh, drives me crazy. Well, but yeah. it's my own fault. Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to assure you, Lisa, you know, I've been telling you that don't worry. The thing that really bothered you, it, there's a resolution to that. And Saga is still great in volume nine. I don't know if it's as great for you as it is in these first two volumes, but we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah. And don't think that Brad hasn't spoiled major plot points. Let's not be cool and pretend like I have no idea what's going to happen. I got to the end of volume nine and I had to talk to somebody and Lisa was right next to me. You know, Brad, for a pacifist, you sure beg to get stabbed a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, uh, let's close this bad boy out. Lisa, 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 where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation on Twitter and Instagram at Sidewalk Siren. And Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. And guess what? You can send us emails too at cbccpodcast at gmail.com. Maybe we'll get listener questions. Uh, I, dude, I would love to answer some listener questions. Give them to us. Also, send us all your positive five-star reviews to our iTunes page. It really helps us out. Yeah, we're a small podcast and... And uh, the world is run by algorithm. So until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.